your hosts have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates inside and outside of the courtroom. Both partners are experienced trial attorneys who have been board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Welcome back to For Better, Worse, or Divorce. I'm Jake Gilbreth. I'm here with my partner, Brian Walters, and we're going to be continuing our mental health and addiction in litigation series. And today we're going to talk about uh, some substance abuse issues. Next episode, we're going to be talking about alcohol abuse, which of course is a substance, but today we're going to try to focus more kind of on illegal drugs, prescription drugs, those types of topics when it comes up in a divorce. So, you know, Brian, I guess uh, starting off with you, you know, we'll talk about alcohol next time, but talk about, you know, how issues coming up and divorces that you handle or custody cases you handle with substance abuse. How does it come up and how is it addressed? Right. And I think there's almost three, almost three categories that we're talking about. One is illegal drugs. So by that, we mean something like cocaine or heroin. Um, and then there's really two kinds of prescription drugs. There's right. There's the pres- there's the ones you have a valid prescription for and that you're using properly, but they're still somehow causing a problem. And the second issue is, I think, either misusing prescription drugs or obtaining prescription drugs on without a prescription, which you know, on the black market, essentially. So, and I think each one of those have to be dealt with a little bit differently. So, I guess we'll try to do that today. But it's a common problem, right? I mean, for most of the time, most parents coming into divorce or child custody litigation are perfectly normal people who might have you know, strengths and weaknesses, but they're fine. But one of the red lines that we run into is that when there's a parent with a substance, serious substance abuse problem that falls in one of these categories, and that's a real problem for raising children, obviously. If, and if there are two parents there and one's sober and one's not, then it's, I guess you can work around it sometimes, or maybe the, the consequences aren't so severe. But when they're going to be split up and the, the problem parent, the addicted parent or abusing parent is going to be alone with the children. And again, I think it also another subset of that is what age are the kids, how responsible are the kids. Then that can be a real, real serious problem that, that we have to address. And we do all, all the time. It's very common in our litigation. Yeah, it's not it's not always going to be, you know, like a CPS case, right? It's not necessarily going to be brought up because Child Protective Services are involved. It's you know, I have people come to me and it's like you said, Brian, like you're, you're in the same household, you're trying to manage it. You know, if you have a, a spouse that's using prescription drugs or using illegal drugs, you're just kind of living it day to day, trying to manage it. And then a divorce happens and then obviously, obviously things are that much more unmanageable. It's never manageable when you have an addiction issue in the family unit, but it's just that much more unmanageable when we're going through a divorce. So, I mean, for me, when you see it, we were talking before we got on a little bit, you know, kind of comparing this to alcohol and how you prove it, you know, that you prove that's an issue. I wouldn't say it's easy to prove an addiction issues with illegal drugs, but probably easier than alcohol, right? Because we have tests for it. You know, it's, there's, despite all the various different stories that I've heard over the years, you know, you show a positive on a hair or nail test for heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine. That's, that's, there you go. That's kind of the end of the discussion. It's, you know, I, I have had the rarest of instances where there's a debate about whether or not the drug test is accurate, but usually that stops the conversation right then. Um, has that been your experience as far as the judges looking at it? I mean, isn't a drug test kind of the be all and all of it? Exactly. I mean, you've got, you know, if you pop positive for cocaine, there's not a not a real legitimate excuse for that, right? Sure uh, at that point, right? you're I'm talking sure about, well, 
Right. Oh, I have it. I mean, you know, you're going to hear it was just once, you know, my spouse did it with me. Oh, you know, it's, it doesn't affect my ability to parent. I won't do it anymore. All of those kind of things are, are what you're going to hear, which is believable or not believable to, um, to a different degree, depending on the drug, I think, and depending on the, um, the circumstance and even maybe how much is in your system. There was, I guess I won't say if it was the other side or my side. I mean, I, I remember once somebody tested positive, I think for methamphetamine. No, heroin, recovering heroin addict, tested positive for heroin, you know, had clearly relapsed. And a response was, well, that's impossible. It's like, well, how is that impossible that you tested positive for heroin? She goes, well, because I use synthetic urine. It's like, well, that's that's not the best excuse out there, right? That you felt the need to use synthetic u- urine with Child Protective Services. But I mean, you know, all joking aside, it's a, these are hard. I mean, all, all addictions are very difficult. But, you know, when you get into the hard drugs and stuff, that is, it has a really, really tough, that's a tough road ahead for the family, for everybody, for the kids, for the parents, for the person that's going through addiction. So I guess backing up and sort of talking about when it, you know, when it first comes up, I mean, a judge can on proper motion um, or request or just on, on her own order a drug test. Typically what we see done, I mean, they can do what's called a URA, which is your urine test. And it's really important that you understand, you know, what types of tests, there's a difference between, you know, an observed test and an unobserved test. I always you know, remind people it's important to specifically put, if it's going to be a urinalysis, specifically put in the order that it's going to be an observed test. Because not all testing facilities observe the, the urine sample. And then you have the situation where people use synthetic urine or various different creative ways you can purchase fake body parts. Well, a certain gender can purchase fake body parts to then use to dispense synthetic urine or clean urine into the test. And if it's not observed, you know, people get away with that stuff. And you got to know your testing facilities to make sure that they that they do a good job and that they're going to observe it. So that's a urine test. And that's going to go back just a small amount of time. And then we have fingernail tests and hair tests where they can take head hair or body hair and test that or clip your fingernails or toenails and test that. Those are the most common ones that I see. What about you, Brian? That's correct. And uh, there's a couple of additional... There's a patch now that you can wear and then essentially have the patch tested, which is interesting. It's, it's in a case of mine right now. I think it needs probably a bit more work to be fully functional and without its own set of problems. J- just an aside to this, we're talking about kind of trying to force someone into a test. I, I have had situations where I've had a client who said, look, you know, I used to be a cocaine addict. I've been clean for 10 years right at the end of the marriage when things were really going straight to hell. I relapsed, you know, went out with my old buddies, you know, to the game and we had, you know, I had a line or two afterwards. I regretted it. And but that was two weeks ago. Right. And so, I mean, in certain cases such as that, where we we might want to come forward and say, we're going to get our own test at a reliable place and reliable type. We expect it to be positive. We're going to disclose it to the court and to the other side. And the goal is to be upfront and honest and get the judge to trust you and say, okay, look, I'm at 200 parts per million or whatever. It was a one-time relapse. You're not going to see it happen again. I got to clean you away, which, you know, with cocaine, generally 72 hours. So I haven't done it recently. It's within the past month. And um, the next time I test in two weeks or a month, you're going to see that it's down to 100 parts per million. And then it's going to go below the threshold. And you can test me as much as you want. And I think in those circumstances, if you've got a client willing to come forward and take responsibility for it, that's probably the best way to do it is just to come forward. Because I think what judges hate the most and fear the most with a person with an addiction or substance abuse problem is, is the lying, the cheating, you know, I, oh, I'm clean. And then they you know, relapse. And if you don't take that attitude or that approach, you may have a better outcome. 
Yeah. And, and for the clients that have addiction issues, right? It's just everybody knows that recovery is it's all about rigorous honesty. And sometimes that means sort of temporarily it has a negative impact on your child custody situation. But, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, your number one priority is your sobriety. You know, as I understand the literature and everything, that's your priority above your visitation schedule and your custody arrangements and your divorce and what's going on with your business or your, your finances. Your number one priority is your sobriety, because if you're not sober, everything else is going to fall apart. Right. You're not going to see your kids. You're not going to have a path forward. And so, you know, on the flip side, you know, we talk about obviously if you have the parent where the other side has addiction issues, your job is to go in there and, you know, protect the child, prove to the court that there's a problem, but then protect the child. You know, on the flip side, if you're the one that has addiction issues, you know, I, I do try to encourage the clients like it's not the end of the discussion, right? It's not you did a drug or you you have an addiction issue, so therefore you don't get to see your kids ever again. I mean, our judges want, uh, my experience is judges want a safe environment for the kids, of course, but they also want the kids having a relationship with both parents. So there's going to be a path forward. It's going to require sobriety, but there will be a path forward. I think for both alcohol and drugs is my experience. And then, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about what that path looks like. But there will be a path if, if a parent is willing to be sober and safe for the for the children. Probably not going to go as fast as the person struggling with addiction wants. Probably, frankly, going to go faster than the protective parent is going to want in some situations. But I think our judges do a good job, particularly when you explain to them, you know, either through a mental health professional or through the literature or both, you know, about you know, how serious the addiction is, but then also what the appropriate way of addressing it moving forward is. Yeah, I agree. So what does that look like, Brian? Like what's your sort of typical, somebody test positive, either side that you've got, somebody test positive for a drug, they're committed to sobriety. And what's that look like, you know, moving forward though, for that parent? I think, right. I think there's a couple of different factors that go through judges' minds about this. And by the way, many times we do go to mediation negotiation and we'll settle on a temporary or permanent plan for monitoring sobriety. It isn't always in a courtroom, but I think I would think about it the same way as a lawyer as I would as a judge. Number one is is the person, what we talked about, being open and honest and serious about the sobriety, right? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, I won't do it again, but do they really mean it? Do they, do they have a history of being sober? Um, do they have a history of, of self-control? Uh, number two, I think it depends on the drug and the history with the drug, right? We know that certain drugs, if you're a 15-year heroin addict, odds of being sober for any period of time are not good. If you snorted Coke one time at a party with your friends and didn't, you know, and haven't used it since, probably certainly not as big of a chance of relapsing or falling into it. I think you also need to think about the kids, right? If you have a newborn or a two-year-old, we've got to be a lot more protective about those kids if the parent does fall off the wagon than you would about, say, you know, a 16-year-old with a car who, you know, the other parent lives three minutes away, right? If the dad's high or passed out or whatever, that kid just gets in the car and drives to the other parent's house and there's not a not a huge consequence to it, whereas, you know, a very young child might die or, or suffer serious injury or neglect. So I think you need to factor all of those things into account. I think also the, the ability to monitor. We've been talking, this is partly about prescription meds, and that's and that's a problem, right? Painkillers are the most common ones, which have gotten, as we've all read, stronger and stronger, opioids and everything else over the years. And lots of people are legitimately in need of them. That's why they were invented and have legitimate prescriptions for them. And so to me, those are the hardest ones to monitor is when someone has a serious prescription drug 
problem. That's tricky because they're a lot, it's sort of a little bit like alcohol in the sense it's legal, right? Like, of course, I have opioids in my bloodstream because I have a prescription for my back pain. So those are the, all the factors that I, I think of. There's probably some more. Yeah. And we've seen the doctor shopping, right? I mean, that's, I think, continues to be a problem. And, you know, some people show up with a totally legit prescription, and but just they're not being honest with the doctor or the doctor's just you know, way off the reservation from what he or she's prescribing. And so that's hard. And, you know, prescription drugs. I've had cases where, you know, the other side is ordering prescription drugs online, right? We, we tried a case a couple of years ago and, you know, we had to have the client go to the mailbox with his phone running, all addressed to his wife, just open up probably, I think, four or five packages, just prescription drugs that she ordered over the mail. And, you know, some obviously we're not mental health professionals, but we see it. You know, the cross addiction issues too, right? You know, somebody's struggling with alcohol, then court testing from alcohol, and then they go kind of go towards prescription drugs or try a different drug and see that a lot. Going to a, a provider and not being honest about a history uh, with addiction issues. Somebody going to get a Xanax prescription from a prescriber, but not telling him or her that they've been to rehab three times for alcohol abuse or for or what have you. It's a lot. I mean, it's it's litigating these cases. There's not they're not slam dunks. They're not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, drug test usually does stop the conversation, but sometimes, you know, people beat drug tests or play games or show up at the t- testing facility with uh, bleached hair or no hair all of a sudden. You know, we've we've seen all those things. So, understanding the literature, understand, you know, having a mental health professional that we work with coming in either side you have the case. I think it's, you know, really important. So, let's talk about I get this question all the time, so I want your opinion on it, Brian, because I know it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but marijuana is illegal in the state of Texas, and it's illegal under federal laws as well. But what do you see our courts doing with that? Yeah, it's evolved. I mean, I started out practicing in, um, you know, in Travis County in Austin back in the 90s, right? And even then, the judges there were not too concerned about it. You go right over the county border. Williamson County, big difference back in the 90s. So it's changed. I think the view of the consensus view of most judges in most places right now is that if that's going on, you know, prior in the lead up to the separation or when the case started, okay, and we're going to we're going to have it stop during the case and we're going to test for it, but we're not going to take any proactive measures for the most part. So yeah, it's almost like a test. It's sort of like if, um, and we'll get into this in the, the alcohol section, sometimes if there's allegations of alcohol abuse, but not that convincing, then sometimes a judge will say no, no alcohol or no pot, just because they want to sort of test the person. Like, is this really, they want, I think they want to put the protective parent at ease. And I think they also want to test this person to say, you know, I don't really think there's a serious problem right now, but I want to see if they can go cold turkey and really stop it. And if they can't, that's a problem. But I, I don't, I've never seen a judge, at least not any time recently, say I'm going to put a parent on restricted or supervised time or limited time just because of marijuana use. But um, and now we have some variations right on it and different types, CBD and whatever else. So you, know, you tell me, what do you think the, the courts are like now? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, it used to be, I mean, even Harris County, I think, Four or five years ago, I remember having a conversation with well, a more conservative judge, right, who said, she said, I'll, I'll supervise parents if they use marijuana. 
which was kind of, you know, really shocking to me. And because that's, you know, Travis County wasn't my experience. And usually Harris County, that wasn't my experience. But she was really serious about it. Now, she's not a judge anymore. But there's, I think some of the more rural counties will take it very seriously. And then probably if you're going to make kind of a generalization, the more urban areas, it's like you said, right? It's like either just knock it off completely while the divorce is pending. Some judges, the attitudes, if it's not, you know, don't do it when you have your children. I think everybody's, I think every judge in every jurisdiction is going to say, don't use marijuana when you're the sole provider for your child. But if you do it when you don't have your kids, usually you're not going to get that much pushback from a judge. And then, you know, testing for it's hard too, because how do you sit there and go, you know, if I did it in Colorado, for example, where it's legal, well, you know, how do I sit there and punish a parent for that? They test positive for marijuana you know, in, in the middle of a child custody case. I, I used to do tell my clients, you know, try to take it off the table as much as you can. The other thing I'll say too is I don't see judges being impressed with this was going on during the marriage. We all knew about it. And now that I'm going through divorce, suddenly it's a problem. My husband is a recreational smoker. He smokes, you know, a thing and it was totally fine when we're, when we were married. And now that we're going through divorce, it's the end of the world. Then that's usually uh, not as impressive to our judges, I think. But, you know, it's a spectrum. All these things are spectrums, just like alcohol, right? Do I have a cocktail with dinner every single night? Is that a problem? Probably not a problem. If I have 10, is that a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. So everything's a case-by-case situation for our judges. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say it this way, but ultimately it's all about what's in the best interest of the kids. And it's all about, you know, safety and every single situation is different. But again, it all goes back to being able to, whichever size you have, being able to explain the situation to the judge, understand, you know, the literature. Lots of times we're pulling in mental health professionals to talk about this to judges and case-by-case scenario, but going in there advocating for what's best for the kids. Yeah, I agree. So a lot of these topics will sort of bleed over, right? When we're talking about, I think our next one's going to be about alcohol. We'll talk about that. But unless we have anything to add for this, I think that concludes this episode. And so we'll remind everybody, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. We appreciate all feedback that we get. You know, people suggesting topics or telling us what they like or don't like. That helps us make this podcast just that much better. So if you have any questions for me or for Brian, questions about this topic or suggestion or anything, we'd love to hear from you. And you can reach out to us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. I'm Jake Gilbreth, and I'm with Brian Walters, and thanks for listening. For information about the topics covered in today's episode and more, you can visit our website at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of For Better, Worse, or Divorce, where we post new episodes every first and third Wednesday. Do you have a topic you want discussed or a question for our hosts? Email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.